You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of international correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. Today I'll be talking to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about Donald Trump's apparent U-turn on Syria and on Russia, and to journalist and writer Paddy Woodworth, author of several books on the Basque country, about the weapons decommissioning at the weekend by the Basque nationalist group ETA. It has been at war for some time, but is this a point of no return? First to Washington. Trump came to power promising an America-first policy that uh, meant staying out of the affairs of other countries. But in the last week, Trump has decided to project U.S. power on the world stage, in Syria, in Moscow, in the Pacific. U.S. policy on Syria is a bit confusing, however. As various officials have described it, the United States will intervene only when chemical weapons are used, or any time innocents are killed. It will push for the throwing out of President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, or may pursue that only after defeating the Islamic State. America's interest in Syria is to fight terrorism, or ease the humanitarian crisis there, or to restore stability. Uh, But at the end of Monday, uh, fearing that new red lines were being drawn uh, by various spokesmen, the White House sought to reassure people, nothing has changed in our posture, um, the uh, journalists were told. Suzanne, where does the US stand? And is there a prospect of further engagement in Syria? This is the uh, the million-dollar question at the moment. We have seen a series of kind of flip-flops over the last five or six days uh, on Syrian policy since that extraordinarily surprising intervention by the US to intervene um, in the early hours on Friday morning. And we can't, you know, overstate that enough. Um, really, nobody saw this coming, it seems, including a lot of people in uh, Trump's administration. Um, so the very fact that they engaged in this uni- unilaterally um, was, a, was a huge development in terms of foreign policy. In the... In in saying that, over the weekend, we have seen a, a series of statements from senior figures within the U.S. administration. Um, a, a lot of high-profile media interviews here over the weekend, particularly on Sunday, by the U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and uh, the increasingly uh, prominent uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. But even within their own statements, there seem to be contradictions. I mean, I think what we are going to see it landing at, if you like, is this sense or a message from Washington that the primary objective is uh, to tackle Islamic State. Nikki Haley said that, the US Secretary of State said that also. Um, but as a corollary to that, really, what the most politically significant and the most politically explosive uh, aspect is that it's also pressing Moscow to um, stop its uh, support for Assad. Now, in, in many ways, really, we could see this as really exactly what the Obama administration thought. Um, has it taken the Trump administration to this point to get to this point? Because obviously uh, the Obama administration had insisted that Assad must go as part of a political transition in Syria. Um, the, the Trump administration had queried that. And even, you know, 10 days ago, uh, senior figures of the administration had said uh, that there was a political reality about Assad being in power. And yet now we see a few days after these strikes that that is, in fact, exactly what they're saying, that Assad must go. So really, I suppose, how far has um, US foreign policy changed and has simply the Trump administration come around rather late to exactly what the Obama administration had wanted? Um, Of course, the big difference being that they did launch military strikes last week. 
Yeah, of course, uh, describing the Northern Ireland peace process, Seamus Mallon once said that uh, the Northern Ireland peace process was Sunningdale for slow learners. And there's a sense in which it it seems that, that Trump is slowly learning what Obama uh, uh, mm. would, would have taught him. He's been broadly supported on both sides of the House in terms of, of the... Uh, attack on, on Syria. But there there are questions raised about the legality of the strike. Mm. Um, well, again, the main issue here last week, which, which comes around every so often, is whether he had the authority as president to intervene and whether Congress uh, should have been uh, consulted. And here, um, the, legal, the legal advice, the legal interpretation is quite mixed. Um, it's a matter of interpretation, really. Um, the powers that the US president has uh, to um, to defend the country if war is declared, for example, are there. But whether um, when we have this grey area about an issue like chemical weapons, how much power the president has, that is up for discussion. Now, Congress itself, in a sense, has been blamed for passing the book, if you like, on these issues of intervention over the last few years. Um, and famously, uh, President Obama went to Congress um, informally, if you like, to seek uh, authorization for going into Syria in 2013, realised he was not going to get that and then decided not to go in. Of course, people are now saying that uh, Trump's moves um, shows that really the president uh, should have just acted. That's what Trump did. And, and lo and behold, he didn't get much uh, pushback really at all from Congress. Even Democrats like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi have, have essentially backed him. Yes, they have said that if there's further uh, intervention, they must um, speak to Congress, must debate this in Congress and, and put it to a vote potentially. Uh, but I do think it's important to stress that really, by and large, there was widespread support uh, for this intervention by both sides side of the house. Now, in the commentary, of course, the, the about Trump's actions, there's an interesting piece by, by Nick Kristoff uh, in, the, in the New York Times today in which he says, look, he may have done it for all the wrong reasons, uh, and I really disapprove of this, and it's a sign of, of a symptom of Trump's arrogance and his lack of foresight and planning, but at the end of the day, he probably did the right thing. But there's also another side of the argument which says that precisely the... Uh, uncertainty uh, in American uh, in America's position made it possible for Assad to calculate that he would get away with with gassing uh, his his own citizens and some would say that Trump has as much blood on his hands as Russia yeah I suppose that isn't that is an argument um, but in terms of you know of the intervention here I think that point is, is right that for better for worse Trump is a new president here. He's less than 100 days in uh, in his presidency and he has kind of got that that wriggle room, if you like, to do something dramatic at this point. Um, and, you know, I do think that the public is with him here. Um, and I do think there, there has been a lot of speculation about the alt-right movement, for example, how they have um, rallied against Trump and are appalled that he seems to have abandoned his American first policy. But whether that will trickle down to the kind of white working class support base that Trump tapped into, say, in the Rust Belt states, just uh, picking up even from talking to people in the US, I think among that sector of voters that at the moment, at least, uh, there is support from what he did, we, we, for what he did. I mean, there is that kind of stars and stripes nationalism that he's tapped into that always goes down well with certain sectors of society here. Now, of course, a big question is um, where this leads to. And if, if Trump, for example, was to drag America into another conflict um, from which he can't escape, well, then I think the, the feeling would be very, uh, very different. But uncomfortable as it is for liberals, I think Trump has got it right here in terms of the public relations uh, at the moment. Um, but as I say, you know, the devil will be in the detail on how this pans out in the next few weeks. Now, we've also seen a shift 
uh, or apparent, an apparent shift because actually Trump hasn't said anything himself uh, in relation to, to Russia. Tillerson is, is on his way there. Um, but it, it's, it's curious this in the context of uh, inquiries into uh, the Russian involvement in, in the election. And, and actually Tillerson yesterday even saying that he, um, he, he accused Russia of trying to influence elections in Europe using the same methods as employed in the United States, which seems to be an admission that Trump certainly hasn't made. Um, what, what is the position on Russia now? It's, it's really quite extraordinary because when Tillerson arrived in Moscow on Tuesday, he in fact has met President Putin before. In fact, the Russian president presented personally, presented uh, Tillerson with the Russian Order of Friendship in 2013. That was when Tillerson was uh, the chief executive of ExxonMobil. So we have this extraordinary situation here where on the one hand, US-Russian relations are at a very, very um, tense moment. And yet we know that senior members of the Trump administration have had um, contact with uh, senior members of the Kremlin, including Putin. Um, so, of course, there is a theory here that um, this, the entire uh, Syria intervention was in many ways a deflectionary tactic by Trump. Was he trying to kind of, um, you know, pour cold water on the issue of his involvement with Russia? Uh, obviously, there are two congressional investigations as well as the FBI investigation ongoing into links between the Trump administration and Russia. Now, um, there's been calls here. It's significant as well, I think, that this has all happened when Congress has just headed off for a two-week Easter break. So in a sense, things have paused. But that uh, Russian congressional investigation on the House side, in particular, was running into difficulty because the, the chair of that committee um, in the House, Devin's Nunes, was, was forced to reside over his links with Trump. So um, I, obviously the, the thinking here is that maybe Trump has, has done this in order to prove that when these uh, investigations continue and if they find anything untoward between Trump and Russia, that he this, this will have been over, overrun, if you like, by events and that people will, will A, maybe not really care that much uh, because uh, Trump has stood up to Russia in a sense. Um, so that's all happening in the background here. And I think that's an important political context. But you're right. I mean, Trump has said very, very little personally about Russia on this. We have seen Nikki Haley, the UN ambassador, come out very strongly and blame Russia essentially for um, backing Assad. And we've seen Tillerson also uh, saying at best um, it's incompetence and um, at worst it's something a lot more sinister about Russia's involvement with Assad in Syria. And I think the, what's very interesting here is that the American focus is all about now how much uh, complicity may there have been between Russia and Syria in the chemical attacks. Did Russia have any prior knowledge of these chemical attacks, considering the fact that their own personnel are reported to have been present in the Sherit uh, airfield from where the chemical attacks were launched? Um, so if this, this is kind of the, the, the thrust of the argument now from the US, it's about pressurizing Russia um, from um, its alliance with Assad. Um, and we probably will see this playing out as well at the UN Security Council. But again, as I said at the outset, this is ironic in that uh, this was always really the message from um, from Obama, the Obama administration from the start of the Syrian conflict. And it does seem like the Trump administration is belatedly coming around to this position. Interesting, too, in comments by uh, the Iranian leader, Rouhani, uh, who yesterday made a speech in which he talked about uh, how the Assad re regime... Uh, which the Iranians are supporting, uh, should be reformed from, from uh, within. Turning briefly, though, to the, the question of China, because there was, a, there was an important meeting between Trump and Xi Jinping uh, last uh, week. 
And uh, Trump has, has dispatched uh, battleships to the Pacific um, to threaten North Korea. Um, does it appear as if he's actually succeeded in getting the Chinese to do more about the North Korean situation? Uh, do we know what actually came out of uh, the talks? Um, I think the timing was, was very interesting on this. Obviously, the Syrian attacks completely overshadowed President Trump's meeting with Xi Jinping. Um, but significantly, um, it was after the return to China that we saw um, quite uh, stilted comments coming from, um, you know, state uh, Chinese media outlets um, insisting that a solution to the Syrian crisis should be done, you know, diplomatically, if you like. And and really, the the implications here was that um, China did really did not approve of these strikes on Syria. Now, again, the UN Security Council aspect is interesting here. China has sided with Russia, essentially, on a lot of issues around um, Syria. Um, it's, it, Russia has continuously vetoed any move against Assad, if you like, and has been backed by Russia, by China on this on a number of occasions. Um, China, in a sense, you know, doesn't want to know, I think, when it comes to Syria and in terms of North Korea. The US has been pressing China to use its economic muscle. For a long time, Beijing has argued that, you know, it, it doesn't hold much political sway over North Korea. And yes, that may well be true. But uh, the message from Washington is that uh, the US is trying to um, to push uh, China to leverage its economic power over North Korea, that uh, China is responsible for about 90% of, of North Korea's external trade. But there is a sense that China just simply wants to, um, you know, pretend this is not happening, if you like, and not get involved in this. But I think um, uh, President Trump really uh, confronted them with this issue on North Korea uh, last week. Um, on the North Korea issue, uh, it does bear reminding that uh, until the Syrian strike last week and these these pictures of uh, the chemical attacks that prompted Mr. Trump's action, North Korea was was absolutely topping the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Allegedly, President Barack Obama briefed Trump on the threat posed by North Korea. And there's now fears in Washington that uh, North, North Korea is developing missile technology that would allow uh, missiles to hit the United States maybe by 2020, as early as that. So I think this was very much a front and center of American foreign policy. Um, and in certain ways, you know, we can read the Syrian strike as um, as a message, as a, as a very, you know, basic symbol, if you like, of American might. And, and Tillerson on Monday in Italy, when he uh, attended a commemoration of a Nazi massacre in northern Italy, again, made that parallel saying that America, you know, would hit back if certain lines are crossed, et cetera, et cetera, and making these parallels um, very generally between countries and regimes that overstep the mark and America's ability and willingness to respond to that. Indeed, and the, the Syrian strike can certainly be seen as a message to North Korea, and, and uh, Trump only last week was telling the Financial Times that if the North Koreans didn't mend their ways or that the Chinese didn't come in with him, that he would strike himself. So we're seeing uh, some of that agenda played out. Thank you very much, Suzanne. When we return, Paddy Woodworth of the decommissioning of Basque paramilitary ETA. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. On Saturday in Bayonne in southern France, a paramilitary group founded in 1959 and which has been involved in over 800 killings since then, surrendered what it said was its arms supplies. 
120 guns, three tons of explosives, and thousands of rounds of ammo. The Basque group ETA, based in northern Spain and southern France, is going through a key stage in winding up, allegedly. But Penny Woodworth, it hasn't gone away yet. No, it hasn't gone away, but... And I, I speak as someone who, you know, I've covered this, as you know, for 40 years for the paper. And I've always been very sceptical of people talking about the end of ETA. But I do think this time we're pretty well at the very end of the road. Uh, it, this is a very significant and substantial handover of arms. It's interesting. Unlike the IRA, they have not destroyed their weaponry. They have simply handed it over um, through intermediaries. Um, and uh, also there has been no split. There, I'm not saying there aren't people who are unhappy with what's going on, but there has been no sign of the emergence of a dissident ETA. So that I think that all that remains for ETA, as an El Pais journalist put it this, this week, they really have, have three options, to kind of fade away quietly, uh, to formally disband, or perhaps to to attempt to form some sort of other association, but it's very hard to see how the third option is a real one because the the entire political space that they might aspire to occupy is already very well occupied by their former political wing, now known as Sortu, S-O-R-T-U, um, which is a legal political party after their surrogate parties were banned many times. And... Uh, and Sorto is doing reasonably well as a political party. Uh, so I, I think the real message from the last, really the breakdown of the ceasefire in 2006, is that there was no future for so-called armed struggle uh, in the Basque independence movement. And it really has been a matter of the, the political wing and the political support base for independence really um, forcing ETA to to stand down uh, and now uh, to hand over its arms. And all that remains of ETA are a lot of prisoners. That's significant. Um, and serving very long sentences in some case and very far away from home. Uh, and uh, a few people on the run and in exile in the French Basque country further afield. Um, but I think we're really probably talking about a handful of people now and, and, and no one who's, in my understanding capable of relaunching an armed campaign in the foreseeable future. Now, there are differences between the, the decommissioning of, of uh, ETA and, and the IRA, one, one of which is that the, the decommissioning has been supervised by an independent body that isn't recognised by the government, and the government has actually poo-pooed the whole thing and said it really wasn't that Im impressed. And there is still an issue, as far as the government is concerned, probably rather unrealistically, that... ETA must uh, explain which of its members carried out which of uh, yes. killings in the past. Yeah, we're, we're seeing, in a sense, two almost equally absurd narratives running parallel here, one coming from uh, Madrid and the Spanish establishment, and particularly the uh, right-wing conservative Partido Popular government, and, and, and the other, the kind of official line from uh, the uh, Sortu, the, the independence movement, uh, which is that ETA has not been defeated. Um, uh, I think ETA has been defeated, and above all, it's been defeated, as I indicated earlier, by its own political base, but they don't want to say that. Unfortunately, in my view, uh, conservative opinion in Spain and, uh, and, and quite a lot of socialist party opinion, too, 
though not the the newer left wing party Podemos, um, but uh, have taken uh, taken a view that ETA must not only be defeated uh, but must be humiliated, and um, I, I I think they need to be. I think this is counterproductive. Um, I, I, I think that it is, as you say, most unlikely that uh, ETA is going to, you know, put its hands up and say, well, such and such a member carried out this killing and such and such a member another killing. No organization is is, is going to do that. Um, I, I, I think that uh, it would be much better uh, if, if Madrid uh, kind of uh, turned over the page and got on with it and actually engaged in a realistic way uh, with independence movements in the Basque Country and in Catalonia. Um, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, there is an extraordinary dialogue of the, of the deaf that, that really has gone on since the transition to democracy uh, between the Spanish uh, establishment and movements, I mean, I call them pro-independence movements, so I actually think they're more self-determination movements. In other words, they're people uh, in the Basque Country and Catalonia who want to be shown the respect of a choice. They don't really necessarily want to leave the Spanish state altogether, but they do want a choice about whether they're part of the Spanish state or not. Well, one of the things that ha happened in Northern Ireland, of course, was th that you got a, a prisoner release programme. And we were talking about some 300 prisoners, uh, Basque ETA prisoners. Is there any prospect at all of discussions uh, that might lead to their release? It seems not under, certainly under the Conservative government. It, it, it seems unlikely. Not only are they not releasing prisoners, they are continuing to hold prisoners in what they call uh, dispersion where they have prisoners held in, in many different jails as far away as possible from the Basque Country. Now, this imposes great hardship, not only on the prisoners, but on their relatives and friends, and has been described by human rights organizations as an abuse. And they could reverse the dispersal uh, policy overnight, simply saying that, you know, the dispersal policy was supposedly designed not as an extra uh, and extraordinary punishment, but was supposed to be designed uh, to stop ETA conspiring, you know, prisoners conspiring together to carry out new attacks. Mm. Uh, since that's no longer on the cards, there seems no reason for the dispersion. And I would argue that, you know, since there is no longer an armed organization, and ETA last Friday, actually in a letter to the BBC, described itself as even before their weapons were formally handed over, they said, we are now an unarmed organization. Well, then, is there, you know, these prisoners are not likely to reoffend. They are certainly not going to reoffend as ETA terrorists because there is no ETA terrorist group for them to, to rejoin. So it would seem to me um, to be just and fair and positive in contributing to reconciliation in the Basque Country uh, to, to start a prisoner release program. But on the contrary, what the Spanish our judiciary has been up to in, in recent years has been actually trying to keep prisoners in jail for longer. And they got into terrible trouble with the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg over this when they tried to retrospectively extend the sentences of particularly notorious set of prisoners. And 16 of 17 judges in Strasbourg said to them, this isn't on. And they had to release a lot of prisoners at that stage because these prisoners had served their time. I think we're looking at a lot of legacy issues here from the dictatorship that I think there are within the Conservative Party, and it's always worth remembering that within the Conservative Party in Spain, the Partido Popular, uh, the, the hard right, the far right, 
is, is living very comfortably because there is no equivalent of the French National Front uh, in, in, in Spain or of the Italian far right. And, and, and why not? Because they are still comfortable within in the Partido Popular and they actually very often in a way that German conservatives and Italian conservatives would never do, um, they actually praise the dictatorship. They, they say the dictatorship was necessary, that it was completely normal. In my view, their treatment of that, uh, the Spanish judiciary, which in my view is unfortunately uh, very heavily politicized, their modus operandi with ETA is not based on justice, it is often based on vengeance. Now, where stands Basque politics at the moment? There's, there's been a lot of, 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 of uh, publicity about the fact that the Catalonian uh, uh, parliament is pushing for a unilateral declaration, perhaps, of independence, certainly a, a referendum on independence. Is, is any of that sort of stuff going on in the Basque country? Yes, it is taking place, but it's very different to Catalonia. And, you know, it's it's been surprising, I think, uh, for many observers that Catalonia is now making the running on independence and has been doing so for the last few years. Um, we hadn't expected the Catalan, conservative Catalan nationalists to move towards independence, and they have very forcibly. And and in, in concert with the Catalan nationalist left, they are, as you say, moving towards uh, declarations of independence or towards independence uh, that, of course, Spain regards as entirely illegal. In the Basque Country, the situation is very different, uh, largely for historical reasons, because the, the running on independence has been made most of the time in the Basque Country uh, by ETA and the pro-independence radical left. And um, that movement was greatly weakened with uh, the failure of the peace processes in 1998 and, and 2006. And uh, it, its vote really seemed to be collapsing. And of course, they also suffered from repression. They suffered from the banning of successive political parties representing their views. Um, but what's been very interesting is that once they, they, they kind of got their act together and, and, and managed to force ETA towards a, a unilateral ceasefire without anything in exchange from the government, and ETA actually put that ceasefire into practice, their vote has soared, and they are now often in Basque elections getting significantly more votes than they ever got when ETA was active, up, up to 25% of the vote. Now, uh, the Basque government at the moment, the autonomous government in the Basque country, uh, is led by uh, more conservative nationalists, if you like, kind of social democratic to centre-right nationalists, and their attitude to independence has historically always been very ambiguous. Uh, there are some moments when they become fervently pro-independence, a lot of other moments when they seem to be quite comfortable with the kind of autonomy they have at the moment, possibly with a couple of bells and whistles added. So there's no consort at the moment between the Basque radical left and Basque nationalist conservatives towards independence. I think they're all kind of looking now to Catalonia and letting Catalonia make the running and, uh, and seeing what happens. Um, and I think the, the radical left in the Basque country may be occupied for the next few years. And one of them is trying to resolve the prisoners issue, hoping that a government might emerge in Madrid that would take a more benign view of early prisoner releases. Um, but the other thing they have to deal with is the emergence in the Basque country of Podemos. The Basque version of Podemos has really taken away a lot of the extra votes, a lot of the bounce that they got. 
uh, from at a ceasefire in 2011. And this is quite interesting. You're getting a lot of very tactical voting in the Basque country where uh, people are voting for the Basque equivalent of Podemos in general elections because they want to damage the Conservatives in Madrid as much as possible. And they would rather like to see Podemos in power in Madrid because Podemos is the only big party in the rest of Spain uh, which actually is openly in favor of self-determination and, and a referendum. But at the same time, Podemos is causing them problems in the Basque country because it's taking a lot of the radical left ter territory, which Etta, Etta's political party, which used to be known as Batasuna, was extraordinarily skillful in co-opting every radical left issue you can think of, from feminism to environmental activism, they um, to third world solidarity. They were much more active in Basque civil society on those issues than, for example, Sinn Féin has ever succeeded in being in Ireland. Um, so I think the Basques face a you know a, a much less clear roadmap uh, towards self determination or independence, uh, putatively speaking. Uh, than the Catalans do at the moment. The situation is is very uncertain there. But I wouldn't also take away from, on the day we're speaking, the, the happiness that I think extends throughout the Basque country and I think even among Basque conservatives because really ETA has been a, a, a very bloody albatross, if I may mix metaphors a little, uh, around the neck of the whole Basque body politic. The the radical left is is happy uh, to say goodbye to ETA, no matter how much they talk about the heroic contribution of the ETA struggle. Um, and of course, uh, those who were ETA's targets are very glad to be able. Now, I mean, the last five years have been peaceful. There haven't been any attacks. But to be, you know, pretty well absolutely sure now that this terrible and unfortunate, in my view, tragically unnecessary chapter in Basque history is now over. An important day. Thank you very much, Paddy. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch and Paddy Woodworth and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Jennifer Ryan. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>